And by the way, I, I recommend to you that you acquire that tape if you were not here in our last class. Um, it was very important to this. An understanding of that subject is very important to this. And we were looking at John chapter 3 as a setting a stage for that, and we went then to Galatians. We'll reiterate that very quickly for you and then go on from there. And then there are some questions that are raised in this connection. The sovereignty of God as we look at it is in two areas. I realize you can go into many areas with it, but we look at redemption and look at the nations. We look at the nations very briefly as God's dealing with the nations and his sovereignty. Let's pray together and we'll go back and recapitulate a bit. Our Father, we're coming once again to submit into your hands this time together which you and your grace have granted us to pursue your word. And we ask again for that spirit of revealed wisdom and the knowledge of you. We confess, our Father, that we have no knowledge of anything in the realm of the Spirit, save you'd reveal it. And so we're praying, our Father, that you might grant in your grace our understanding, that we may know the things that are freely given to us of God. We thank you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Going back then to John's Gospel very quickly, we'll look first of all at chapter 1. If I lose you anywhere here now, please stop me. We want to make a distinction in your thinking. This is where we're headed. I'll tell you what we're going to tell you before I tell you, all right? We want to make a distinction in our thinking between those that are born of the Spirit and those that are born of the flesh, or in another term, those that are um, born from above and those that are born of the will of man. We'll see this verse in a moment. But we had talked to you before in our discussion of federal headship that there were two spheres of headships in the world. There was the first man, Adam, and we all come into the world the first time in the first Adam. We are born again to come into the last Adam by death and resurrection. The cross slays us to our former relationship in the first man, Adam, and we are born again into a new relationship in the last Adam. Now, within this sphere of the first man, Adam, there are two kinds of people. This is what we want to set forth in this class. There are two kinds of people. There are those that are born of the will of man, and there are both those that are born of the will of God. Let me put a key down, okay? There are those that are born of the will of man, and those that are born of the will of God. These that are born of the will of man have no ears to hear. These that are born of God have ears to hear. They are what the Gospel and the Epistle of Galatians refer to as being born from above. We shall once again reiterate the problem with Nicodemus' question. Well, Lord, how can these things be? Do I have to go through the whole natural process of birth again? And Jesus said, Nicodemus, are you a what? What did he say? Teacher, in Israel, and you don't understand this? You remember that question? Now, that's very important. Nicodemus, are you a teacher in Israel, and you don't understand these things? Why should Nicodemus have understood the message which Jesus was giving to him in John 3? Now, once again, the translation there is very regrettable. We'll come back to that. So that those that are born of God are those that have ears to hear, and they are the ones who hear the message of the gospel, and they believe it, and are transferred from death into life. Only those who are born of God show up in the last Adam. Aren't you with me on that count now, thus far? didn't ask you to agree with me. I just want to know if you understand what I say, okay? Because you may very well not agree with us. All right, looking at John chapter 1 then, and we're going to begin for some context with verse 9. This was the true light which lighteth every man that cometh into the world. And it's quite obviously the Word is Jesus, right? We don't have any problem with that. He was in the world, and the world was made by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, 
And his own received him not. Now his own there are who? Jews, precisely. And his own received him not. But as many as received him, to them gave he the power, or more literally, if you would, to them gave, him, uh, gave he the authority to become the born ones or the children of God, not sons. The emphasis is not on sonship, it's on birth. Even to them that believe on his name. Now, you're posing a problem immediately. He came to his own Israel, and some believed him and some didn't. The question that's raised then, why did some believe and some not believe? How do you answer that question? It's answered in verse 13. He's explaining in verse 13 why some believed and some didn't. These who believed were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The reference is not to second birth or new birth. The reference is to first birth. And he is explaining why they believed, so that they could be born again. At, at this point, I will say, however, in John's gospel, nobody was born again, were they? Jesus had not died yet and been resurrected, so that is not the issue. The issue is, how did they believe? How did they, why was it that they received him as Messiah and others didn't, as the Pharisees, for example, did not? All right, it is explained in these terms. They were not born of blood. That is, out of one particularly chosen line like the Jews. The Jews often had it in their minds. Because they were Jews, that settled the issue. That did not settle the issue. Keeping that thought in your mind and your finger in John 1.12, go with me please to Romans chapter 9, verse 6 and following. Perhaps verse 4 and following will be helpful. Keeping your finger in John 1.12. Who are Israelites... 9.4 of Romans, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom, as concerning the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Not as though the word of God hath taken no effect. Now, this is to whom he came, Israel. Not as though the word of God hath taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. You following now? Neither because they are the seed of Abraham are they all the children, but in Isaac shall I seed be called. So he's pointing out in two aspects. First, out of Abraham, God had a chosen seed, Isaac, not Ishmael, as also out of the nation of Israel, God has a chosen seed. So it isn't because they're all born of blood, that is of one line, that they are the chosen seed. God has a remnant. So they were not all of blood, nor of the will of the flesh. Now there's a beautiful illustration of that in... Uh, Abraham. Abraham had a desire in the flesh to have a son, but he couldn't have a son, could he? So God set him in a position so that he could not fulfill his own will. He couldn't produce a son at his own will. Then, in the last part of the verse, nor of the will of man, Sarah provides an avenue whereby he could produce a son. Yes? So Ishmael is born of the will of the flesh and of the will of man, but he's not born of God. Are you following so they are not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of man, of the will of man, but they are born of God. Now, with regard to the will of man, back to Romans 9 again. And look with me, please, to verse 14 and following. Pardon? Romans. Yeah, that was John 1.13 I was reiterating. Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 14 and following. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. That's a question that's always raised. For he saith to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then, it is not of him that willeth. Now you notice that? So what do you say back here? They're not born of the will of the flesh. It is not of him that willeth, nor is it of him that runneth. That is, the one that puts forth energy to get there. But of God that showeth mercy. So the distinction between the ones that believed and the ones who didn't believe 
is a matter of those who could believe and those who couldn't believe. And those who could believe were those who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now go with me to John 3. John chapter 3. This is a rather elaborate study, and we're kind of hitting it uh, tragically lightly, but we'll give you enough to meditate on anyhow. Chapter 3 of John. Chapter 3 of John is the great chapter usually concerned with, uh, thought of to be concerned with the new birth. In fact, John 3 deals with new birth, but it does not speak of the new birth, neither is it immediately concerning itself with the new birth. If you want to teach on a new birth, then go to 1 Peter chapter 1, not to John 3. 1 Peter chapter 1 sets the new birth in its right relationship with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. John chapter 3 is talking about our first birth. And may we read then, please, from verse 2. Then came to Jesus, uh, the same came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus said unto him, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher come from God. Nobody can do these miracles that thou doest except God be with him. Now he knew that Jesus had come from God as a prophet. Verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a man be born not again, but what? From above. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now he doesn't mean born again. There he said born again. He means from above. They aren't the same. Certainly to be born again is to receive life from above, but that is not what he's addressing here. That's why it is so translated, I might add. Now, Nicodemus has just said, we know you're a teacher come from God. Jesus immediately says, Nicodemus, you couldn't understand this if you weren't born from above. Are you following what we're saying now? Except a man be born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Not enter into, we'll come to that, but see, perceive, understand, comprehend the kingdom of God. If I were to say to you, do you see what I mean? And I think I've said that two or three times already this morning. I'm not asking you if you can visualize the articulated words that I've just put out. I'm asking you if you understand. That is exactly what Jesus is saying here. Except a man be born from above, have his life sourced from above by first birth, he cannot comprehend the message of the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus missed it. Nicodemus, as a teacher in Israel, ought to have understood what it meant to be born from above. But he didn't catch it. Can any other second time his mother's womb be born? Jesus said in verse 5, Verily, verily, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit. Now there's new birth. Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now you don't go to heaven in the kingdom of God. Or I should, let me rephrase that. That's going to be ambiguous. Entering into the kingdom of God is not going to heaven. Entering into the kingdom of God is not being justified. You've got a lot of people who are already justified at this point who are not in the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the advent of the Holy Spirit. It is the creation of the power of God in his body in the earth. Now, certainly those that are in the kingdom of God are going to go to heaven, but uh, going to heaven is not getting into the kingdom of God. Are you all following what I'm saying? The kingdom of God was a new work that God was doing by the advent of the Holy Spirit into the earth. Up to that time, everybody was justified, and now they're going to get saved, and salvation of God and the kingdom of God run synonymous. We talked about that in the previous lesson. He says, then, except man be born again, if you would, but of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. So first he's born from above to see it, then he's born again to enter into it. See that in simple terms? Yes, sir. Well, no, it's been interpreted to be the physical. We had a fellow in, uh, we were in school with who was very adamant about that, that it was physical birth. Yeah. 
Well, that's what we're coming to. So verse 6 is really the verse we need to light on to expound on what we've been talking about. But in verse 5, there are two interpretations of this. One is that it is in the Greek construction of Handiatus, or a Handiatus, depending on who you're a student of. Uh, the uh, uh, reading would be then, except man be born of water, even the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. I do not think that is necessarily a justifiable interpretation of this passage. Certainly, the water in the Scripture testifies to the Word of God. The washing of the water of the Word of God, Ephesians chapter 5, that is the cleansing work. You see it figured in the tabernacle. They came first to the laver. There was the cleansing of the water. And, they, and then they entered into the sanctuary. There was the sphere of the Spirit. So you first pass through the work of the Word, and then you pass into the work of the Spirit. It's the Word of God that gives us ears to hear, and after we've had ears to hear, then faith comes, and I enter into what is of the Spirit. Five. I think 25 and following. Let me give you the specific verse. Um, 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. The washing is referred to when the water speaks to washing. You have the same thing in Titus 3, 5, you'll remember, uh, by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So it is a word, it is a work, first of all, carried on by the word of God, which brings me into the work of the Spirit. Let me uh, take you to Ezekiel 36, just to note that even farther. Ezekiel 36. This uh, addresses the new covenant. I think it's important in this connection. Verse 24, Ezekiel 36. For I will take you from among the nations and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and ye shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. A new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you and will take away the stony heart of your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. So we've got the work of the water and the work of the spirit and he's going to cleanse them from all of their filthiness. Well, how does he cleanse them from all their filthiness? It's the sanctification of the word of God. You're clean, Jesus said, through the what? Word which I have spoken unto you. There is that cleansing. So, 16.9. What is that, sis? Read that. Yes. Amen. Amen. It is the sanctifying work of the Word of God. When God speaks, He sanctifies. He cleanses. And water through the Scripture continually gives testimony to the Word of God and often to the Spirit of God. It's interesting to me that the Spirit and the, and the Word agree in one, John said. They move together. You never separate the Spirit of God from the Word of God. They're always working together in one. That's why you have the water in the Word. Uh, uh, the water and the Word are parallel to the Spirit and the Son. Let's put it that way. The water and the Word are parallel to the Spirit and the, and the uh, Son. They work as one. The Word of God and the Spirit of God move as one. So Jesus said, except man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now that's how you get into it. You understand it because you're born from above. Now verse 6. And when he speaks verse 6, he lays out a truth which Nicodemus should have thoroughly grasped by the Old Testament record. He's using the very terminology which the Old Testament record uses. Verse 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. I used to teach from this passage. Now, if they'd only believed, they could have become spirit. That's not what the verse is saying at all. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. He's making a positive, declarative, permanent statement. It is flesh and it is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto you, you must be born from above. That, again, is very regrettable. The Greek word is anathon, not anagonao. Verse 7. 
Why will not that say no? You must be born from above, literally. It's the same as in verse 3. The word is anathon. Now, um, the word for born again is, or again, is anaganao, and that's the term that's used in 1 Peter chapter 1, both in verse 3 isn't, or for verse 4, and in verse 23. Now I'll come down here, please, to verse 9. And Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? See, he didn't understand it. And Jesus said, Are you a teacher in Israel, and you don't understand these things? Now, why should he have understood this? If you'll go with me to Galatians, please, chapter 4, verse 21 and following. Tell me, ye that desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, the one by a bondwoman and the other by a free woman. But he was of the bondwoman, was born, how? After the flesh, verse 23. But he of the bondwoman was by what? Promise. Now we shall see that by promise and by the Spirit are the same thing. One looks at what God said, the other look at how it looks at what God then did. But they speak to the same thing. Now, verse 24, which things are an allegory? For these are the two covenants, the one Mount Sinai bearing children under bondage who is Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and answered to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. But Jerusalem, which is what? Above. Anathon. Same word. Anathon. Jerusalem, which is above, is free, which is the mother of us all. So if Jerusalem is the mother of us all and it's above, we are born what? From above. See then? All right. That's the source of our birth. Now we'll move on from that. Uh, verse 28. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. Now what's the difference between Isaac and Ishmael? Ishmael was born of blood, of the will of the flesh, and of the will of man, but not of God. Isaac was born of the will of God. Verse 29 now. But as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now. Born of the flesh, born of the Spirit. Same thing you have in John 3, 6. Nevertheless, what saith the Scripture? Cast out the bondwoman with her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not the children of the bondwoman, but of the free. Now, the emphasis there is on law and grace. We're looking particularly on verse 28. Now, we, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. You following with us now? Have I lost any of you? Okay, go back with me then to John's Gospel. <clears throat> and look at the chapter 3 again and verse 27. Except a man, uh, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing except it be given him from heaven. Now you notice that source of life, from heaven. Now move down please to verse 31. He that cometh from above is above all. He that is anathon, from above is above all, excuse me. He that is of the earth is earthly, and speaketh of the earth. He that cometh from heaven is above all. So what does it mean to be from heaven? It's from above. What's it mean to be from above? From heaven. To have a source of your life from heaven. And what he hath seen and heard, that he testifieth, and no man receiveth his testimony. Now move over with me to John chapter 8 and verse 23. And he that is Jesus, verse 23, and he, Jesus, said unto them, Ye are from beneath. Now, who's he talking to? Jews and the Pharisees in particular, yes? All right. Ye are from beneath. I am from above. Ye are of or out of this world. I am not of this world. Moving over now to verse 37. 
I know that ye are Abraham's seed, but ye seek to kill me, because my word hath no place in you. Now, uh, our subject is the sovereignty of God, and we noted to you that when we dealt with it, we'd have to address Abraham's seed. Abraham's seed is tremendously important to understanding redemption. Yes, ma'am. That's correct. Yes. And in Galatians 4, that's correct. That there's always the antagonism between those that are born of the flesh and those that are born of the Spirit. Yes, sir. Yes. Yes, we're coming on to that. That's right. This is, uh, that wipes this whole thing out, and everybody here is X's, and when they believe, then they become O's, and they can believe if they want to or they don't have to. That's up to them, and God says it to everybody, and etc. and so the X's become O's. Uh, that's not the case at all. Jesus is setting forth the source of their birth, whether or not they are the children of promise, and that makes this distinction here. And in the first man, Adam, you have two kinds of people. You remember before Esau, and we haven't looked at this verse again, we will. Before Esau and Jacob were born, what did God say to Rebekah? There are two manner of people in your womb. There are two manner of people in the world. There are those who are the flesh and those who are promised. Yes, ma'am. Yes, yes. Esau have I hated. Oh, uh, raise some eyebrows perhaps. We'll come to that momentarily. Uh, verse 38, I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen from your father. Now, this is what Bob was talking about. They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Now, I want you to watch the distinction here. Look back at verse 37 again. He said, I know that you're Abraham's seed. Do you see that? But here he says, if you were Abraham's children, you do the works of Abraham. You don't have Abraham to your father. Now, what in the world is he saying? If they were the seed of Abraham, wasn't Abraham their father? No. What Jesus is concerning himself are the children of Abraham by faith. And that also included the Jews. So they were born out of Abraham as a seed, but they were only the children of Abraham if they believed him. So verse, uh, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. Verse 40, but now ye seek to kill me, a man that told you the truth, which I have heard of God, this did not Abraham. Ye do the deeds of your father. Abraham did not. Abraham was not a murderer. The attitude of a murderer is in their heart. You seek to kill me, a man that told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. Abraham was not. Abraham was not a murderer in his heart, and Abraham did not tell them the truth. Abraham didn't tell them the story of the truth of the gospel, as Jesus is telling them the story of the truth of the gospel. Ye do the deeds of your father, and then they said unto him. We are not born of fornication. By the way, that was a dig against Jesus because they assumed he was. You remember the manner of his birth. We have one Father, even God. And Jesus said unto them, now here's the clincher, if God were your Father, ye would love me, for I proceed forth from, I'm sorry, I pro proceed forth and came from God. Neither came I myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. Not because they don't want to, they cannot hear my word, he said. Ye are of your father, the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks, 
speaks a lie, he speaks of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. Verse 47, He that is of God heareth God's words. He that is born of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Now, new birth hadn't even happened yet. So he couldn't ta be talking about somebody's attitude in, in the new birth. He is talking about their first birth. And he says in verse 47, He that is of God heareth God's words. He that's born from above hears God's words. Now go back to verse 42 again. I'm sorry, not verse 42, verse 44. Year of your father the devil. I used to too, Bob, when I began to preach, would preach that everybody had the devil for their father and if they just believed the devil would stop being their father. <clears throat> that is not the case. Everybody has Adam the first for their father, but in the sphere of Adam the first, you are either born of God or out of the devil, one of the two. You're either from above or from beneath, one of the two. And you people in this class need to understand, and again, you may or may not agree with this, but I lay it out on you anyhow, but you need to understand that the devil never was your father, that God was your father from the very outset, and that God has two manner of people in the world. And some of them, though they may be born carnally out of the same line, have A, their source like Esau in Satan, or B, their source like Jacob in God. They are either born of the flesh or they are born of promise or of the spirit, if you would, like Isaac. Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. Now you're talking about this sphere. Yeah. Oh, yes. Yes, that's quite another thing. That's right. Exactly right. And he goes out to deceive the nations. They just haven't had anybody to deceive them. You know, we're kind of on the other side of that right now. Right now, the Spirit of God is loosed in the earth to call out the people that belong to him. And uh, uh, if he were not calling them out, then they wouldn't come to him. So he's come to call them out to him. So then, in that side, on the other uh, hand, he's going to be bound, and they won't be called out to Satan until the close of that period. Then he's got to be loosed, yes, for them to be called out to him. The distinction to be made between the two. Yes, sir. They will believe. Amen. They surely will. Jesus said, those to the Father, John 17, we're going to look at John 17, those whom thou hast given me out of the world, I have lost none. And he said, neither pray I for these only, but for all those who will believe on me through their word. He isn't going to miss anybody. Um, None that are born from above are going to die until God saves them. That's wrong. Absolutely wrong. That's right. Now, there are just a lot of things coming up here that really we're going to look at. But uh, let me just say at this point, um, uh, the question that Bob's talking about now, and I'm often asked this when we deal with this subject, well, then why go preach the gospel if that's the case? 
Well, you have two reasons. Number one, God told us to. And if we didn't have any other reason other than that, we are incumbent in obedience, to obedience, upon obedience. What's the word I want there? Uh, God says, obey me. <laughs> uh, and so he says, go into all the world, preach the gospel to every creature. Now, not every creature is going to get saved, but I'm out there sowing seed, you know, and some of the seed falls on good ground, some of the seed falls on bad ground. The problem is not with the seed, the problem is with the ground. Well, no. He's, what about these people that are trying to teach the ape how to understand? Well, that, that's, uh, that's the humanistic attitude of man that we came out of an ape, and therefore if we educate that ape, maybe he can behave like a man. What's really happening is the man's beginning to educate, be educated by the ape, so he behaves like the ape. To whom you yield yourself servants to obey his servants you are. And if you obey the theology of evolution, you behave like an animal. That's the truth. It really happens. You, uh, you observe that... Uh, uh, those people who understand that they have their source in God have a life standard that is consistent with what they understand their source to be. But those people who feel like that their source is out of an animal kingdom, uh, it's whatever's good for the herd, you know? It's a, it is, what do they call that? The standard ethics? Uh, well, yeah, but there's another, there's a word for that. Situation ethics, yeah, situation ethics. It's whatever you happen to be in. If murder is, is the situation in which they live, and often I've heard this, well, they're happy in their culture, let them alone, why should we go in and change it? And they said that to a friend of mine who went down to Surinam, uh, places where they'd offer their children to a demon. They'd serve, it, uh, serve up their children to the uh, crocodiles in the Amazon River. And they say, let them alone. They're happy in their culture. You tell that mother when she does that she's happy in her culture and see what kind of reply you get. She's bound in her culture. She's a long way from happy in her culture. You go to some of the tribes in Africa that bury twins alive when they're born because they think because they're twins, one of them has to have a demon. And so they bury both twins alive. You ask that mother if she's happy in her culture. I get a little nauseated at that kind of thing. And you pick up that sort of stuff from this uh, archaeological, uh, not archaeological, I'm sorry, the other outfit, uh, anthropological, yes, uh, philosophies of humanism and, and evolution, which is asinine. And even the scientists now are beginning to reject evolution. Um, you know, you want to rejoice at that, but it almost makes you ill that they were dumb enough to believe it in the first place. Evolution has got to be one of the most asinine suggestions that were ever put out on the scientific world and taught as a science is just absolutely unreal. And to note the, the uh, inconsistency of that, they even at this point will say, well, well, now they're not saying this anymore. They're beginning to adjust their whole position on evolution. But, but uh, oh, five, ten years ago, uh, they were saying in their books, uh, whatever the process or however long the process of evolution took, it becomes obvious that it is no longer taking place. And I laughed at that. Although, well, isn't that neat now? They had a whole thing that took place back here now. Now it's done. They obviously look right now and say it isn't taking place. Everything's the reverse of that. Society is deteriorating. Creation is deteriorating, not improving. But back there it was improving. I'll tell you, we are, we are arrogant in our ignorance. We really are. The more ignorant we are, the more arrogant we are. And then they found this thing down here. And where was it? Uh, it wasn't in Africa. That wiped out the whole where? That... Uh, Bones, yeah, I guess it, I think it was South America. These set of bones that frustrated their whole evolutionary scale. They found a, a fully formed uh, Homo sapien skeleton remains that dates way back beyond their uh, Neanderthal and all the rest of that outfit. The Piltdown Man, which was called the Haha -ha Man, when they found out he was a phony. It's really ludicrous. It, it is. It is an insult to the intelligence which God gave man. But that's what Paul said. Their understanding was darkened. They became vain in their imaginations. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. 
And the more wise we thought we were, the more foolish we become. It is absurd. Is that what I was going to do? Yeah. Uh, see if we can't recover that then. All right, the first reason is I am told to do so. Yes, ma'am. No, now, I didn't say he was Satan's son. I said he was born of the flesh. Uh, Ishmael is a unique uh, uh, situation. God is going to give promise to, to multiply the seed of Ishmael in a certain uh, uh, sphere of blessing, but it's all fleshly. It is not spiritual. Uh, to Israel, or through Isaac, I should say. Through Isaac, he gave spiritual blessing. To Ishmael, he gave natural blessing. And... Uh, uh, Ishmael, of course, being the father of the Arab nations today, they have a great inheritance in the economy of God that's yet to come. But there again, you see, don't miss the point. It is even out of the line of Ishmael, there are those that are born of the flesh and born of the spirit. You see, as out of the line of the English, there are those that are born of the flesh and of the spirit, and out of the line of the Americans, whatever they are, are there are those that are born of the flesh and born of the spirit, and so forth. Well, see, here again, we're preempting something that, that uh, falls in another area, but I have to address it here, I suppose, because we're going to raise some confusion. As God looks at the nations, God looks first at individuals in his redemption. He looks at the nations as a, as a part of his overall program. And the Ishmaelites, or the Arab world, has a part in God's redemptive program among the nations. And he is calling out now to himself a people out of tribe, or tribe, tongue, people, and nation. That's the remnant that constitute the church. When he is done doing that, then he brings together the nations, and the nations of them that are saved bring their glory and their honor into the city. Now, the church is the bride, and she's taken out of all those nations. But the national distinction God established, and God is redeeming the nations as well. And those nations, as they are redeemed, come into the economy of God in the new heaven and well, even in the kingdom for that matter, but ultimately in the new heaven and new earth. And they occupy their specific places before God in the new heaven and new earth. National distinction was uh, in God and his origin, and it will never be uh, left. Uh, heaven's going to be on this earth. We all understand that, don't we? And heaven's going to come down to this earth. We aren't going to be sitting up in there in the third heaven somewhere, strumming a harp, sitting on a cloud. God is going to open the, uh, the firmament. The third heaven is going to come down to this earth, and God will dwell with us and be our God, and we shall be his people. And God descends from heaven to the earth when he makes the new heaven and new earth. And national distinction will still be maintained. God is a God of variety. And all those nations will occupy a place in their redeemed uh, position in his economy in the new heaven and new earth. And the Arabs will be a part of that. But they will be nations which God has established, not which man has established. And you don't look at East Germany and West Germany, for example. You look at Gomer and his bands. And God's going to set that national distinction out as he had once done so. And Israel is going to be the head of those nations. She has been the tail of the nations, now she's going to be the head of the nations. So you've got to look at two different things then. Right now we're discussing those that are called out of people of his, for his name. Then you shall see after the church is through being formed, as God begins to redeem the nations, he is redeeming individuals certainly to constitute those nations. They are those who believe. But that is quite a different thing. So it isn't that Ishmael is cast off completely. As Paul will say in Romans chapters uh, 9, 10, and 11, that Israel is not cast off, but he is calling out of Israel right now. Those Pharisees, where the children had the father for, had the devil for their father, but others believed. But that didn't mean that all Israel was cast off who doesn't believe now. Has God cast away his people, whom he foreknew, Paul said, Romans 11. No, he said he has not. But a deliverer will come out of Zion and will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. Ultimately, the nation of Israel will be redeemed, but they are not in the church. Deuteronomy, yes. 
God promises in Deuteronomy, I'll make you no longer the head or the tail, but the head. Mm. Yes, that's right. Cursing the byword among the nations. Yes, that's right. And thought about that in terms of the scorpion. The scorpion, well, I better not get into that. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yes. We're having a hard time getting to that, aren't we? Uh, all right, to get the other reason, go with me to Romans, please, and chapter 10. Romans in chapter 10. He's really explaining here the first reason, but Romans chapter 10, verse 14 and following. Now, we haven't discussed the word believe yet, but I want to point out to you that the reason you believe is because you're a believer. You don't be you're not a believer because you believe. You believe because you're a believer. And we shall see that in due course, but that's important to this. Chapter 10, verse 14, Romans. How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? How shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings and good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah saith, Lord, who hath believed our report? And on you go with it. Uh, so then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Have they not heard? Yes, verily, their sound went into all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. That's a quote from Psalm 19. But I say, did not Israel? No. First Moses saith, I will provoke you to jealousy by them that are no people, Gentiles, and by a foolish nation I will anger you. But Isaiah is very bold and saith, I was found of them that sought me not. I was made manifest unto them that sought not after me. Gentiles. All right, now, what's he saying in these verses? He's saying there are believers out there, but how are they going to believe if they don't know what to believe? So how shall they believe except they hear? And how shall they, are they going to hear without a preacher? And how are they going to preach except they be sent? That's why we go preach the gospel. Paul said, I endure all things for, anyone finish it? The elect's sake. I endure all things for the elect's sake, so that they can obtain this like precious salvation. So we're going out to cast the seed on the ground. And some of it's good ground, and some of it's bad ground. We don't know the difference between the good and the bad ground. You following? But we're just throwing the seed. And then whether or not it grows testifies to whether or not it's good or bad ground. That's the parable of Matthew 13. And some seed fell on stony ground, and some seed fell on the wayside, and some seed fell uh, in shallow ground, and... Uh, and then some seed fell on good ground. And the good ground brought forth some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. I got that backwards. Some 100, some 60, and some 30-fold. That's those three stages of growth that I've already talked to you about. But then the bad ground is quite another matter. The problem was not with the seed. The problem was with the ground. With the shallow ground, for example, the seed sprung up quickly. What's the seed? The Word of God. And the seed, the Word, sprung up quickly. But because it had no depth of root, there was a problem with the ground. It withered and died. You want an example of this in the Scripture? Disciples went down to Samaria, preached the gospel, and there was great joy through the whole city. But did everybody in Samaria get saved? See, there was great joy through the whole city, but everybody in Samaria didn't get saved. I'm preempting one of my verses, but go with me, please, to Acts. Second reason is so that the believer knows what to believe. Or if you want to put it in simple terms, for the elect's sake. There is yet a third reason, which I might as well include here, since we're talking about it. The third reason is to condemn the unbeliever. The same cross that saves you condemns the world. Yes, exactly. By faith, building the ark, he condemned the world. Acts chapter 13, and I'll begin reading with verse 44 just to see the context. I want you to see shallow ground. And the next Sabbath day came almost the whole city together to hear the word of God. Paul is in Antioch of Pisidia now. Antioch in the north, Gentile city. 
But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy. Now, why did God say? To provoke you to jealousy, right? So I said, I'm going to call out these Gentiles, provoke you to jealousy. Well, is it working? I dare say it's working. When the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy and spoke against those things which were spoken by Paul, contradicting and blaspheming. That's the way the flesh works, contradictory and blasphemous. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God first be spoken to you, Jews. But seeing you put it from you and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, lo, we turn to the Gentiles. Now get this in the next two verses. For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the nations, that thou shouldst be salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad. Isn't that neat now? The Gentiles were all glad. This is wonderful, this thing we're hearing. Shallow ground. Now notice, good ground comes up. And they, the Gentiles, glorified the word of the Lord, and as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. How about that? So because they all got happy over the message didn't mean they all believed. A lot of them received it in the shallow ground, but because it was shallow ground, it had no depth of root. And the word worked, but it couldn't bring forth fruit because there was no depth in the ground. The problem was not in the word. The problem was in the person. The problem was not in the seed. The problem was in the ground. Do you see that? If you don't see that, tell me. Any comments? To be made to feel good again. Yes. Oh, yes, indeed there is, Karen. It is uh, a tragedy that when, when God does something for us, which is very legitimate, there are always those good feelings that come from it. And then we tend to be a people who go after then the good feelings. And uh, whirlings then begin to benefit from those good feelings. Uh, that's mixed multitude again, you see. They come and attach themselves to the place where they can be made to feel good. And oftentimes, here's that word again going forth. Well, let me, I'm getting away from what you're saying. Uh, the believer then often becomes a kind of spiritual dope addict. He will go from one meeting to another meeting to another meeting where he can be made to feel good. And he lives on the experience of that meeting. And when he goes out of the meeting, everything falls apart, so he can't wait till he can get back to another meeting. Now, I'm not against the meetings. Please, don't misunderstand me. The point is that if you cannot live between the two meetings in the presence of the Lord and in the consciousness of his presence, or being conscious that he is present whether you're conscious of his presence or not, then there's something very wrong with the kind of experience you're having. I'm talking about believers now. Uh, that's uh, a very unfortunate uh, emphasis, I think, that's put on a lot of meetings where, where the, where the uh, pursuit of the meeting is to bring out some phenomenal experience in the people of God that are there. I think that's very dangerous. Uh, I think it is, uh, I'm, I'm getting a field here, but I think it is hypnotic. And uh, the people of God begin to come without recognizing it under a kind of witchcraft dominion in that experience. There's nothing wrong with the experience. That's why when the disciples came back from having raised the dead, cast out demons, healed the sick, etc., they said, it's wonderful. They were rejoicing in it. It's wonderful. Even the demons are subject to us in your name, Lord. Kela, and he defeated their attackers, and Kela received him with joy. And he came in as Saul was chasing him. You remember? Saul wanted to kill him. It was told Saul that David was in the city of Keilah. And he came against Keilah. And David inquired of the Lord. He said, will Saul come here for me? And, and God said, he will come. And he said, will the men of the city of Keilah deliver me up unto him? And God said, they will deliver you up. 
Well, now, isn't that astounding? Here, David has just delivered all of them from death, and they're going to surrender David, the man who delivered them? Yes, they will. What's the lesson? You can have any blessing in your spiritual walk with the Lord, but when the time comes that the enemy comes against you, that blessing will not deliver you. It'll deliver you up. The very thing that you've rested in, you've put your confidence in. A lot of believers don't feel like they're saved unless something good to is happening to them all the time. Oh, yes, beloved, that's very true. A lot of believers feel like that if God didn't meet them in this meeting with some phenomenal thing, if they didn't speak in tongues, prophesy, feel a freight train going up and down their bank, get slain in the spirit or whatever other thing you want to say, they feel, oh, where's God? He's departed from me. The blessing will always deliver you up to the flesh. But if you understand by faith that God is always with you, in the words of the songwriter, when darkness veils his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. If you're absolutely confident of that, that if everything is going wrong around you, that God is still present and ever-present help in time of trouble, then I don't care what Satan throws against you. All hell can come against you and won't shake you. You may not like it, you know, but it won't shake you. Never let your experience be the criteria for how you judge your spiritual life. Never. Yes. Oh, hallelujah. I tell you, it's wonderful. Uh, the kind of work that God has wrought for us cannot be put in a bottle. The uh, uh, consistency of God is not found in the way he works with me. Or I, I should rephrase that. The consistency of God is not seen in what he does for me, but in why he does it. And God's purposes are always the same, to conform me to the image of his Son. And if a little blessing helps in that end, he gives me a little blessing. If a lot of blessing helps to that end, he gives me a lot of blessing. But if a little trouble helps to that end, he'll give me trouble. And if a lot of trouble helps to that end, he'll give me a lot of trouble. And in the midst of all that, we can still say, Amen, Lord, true and righteous are thy judgments. Now, where did I leave you with all that? Was I, did I have you in, where did I have you? John 8? David of Keilah, huh? Yeah. John 17, all right. All right, we'll go to John 17, and then we'll come back to John 10. Or let me just look at John 17 quickly, and then we'll take a break and come to 10. Seven times in John chapter 17, Jesus reiterates in his prayer before the Father that we are a gift from the Father to the Son. The Father gave us to the Son. Verse 2, as many as thou hast given me. In verse uh, 6, um, I have manifest thy name unto the men whom thou gavest me out of the world. They are thine, they were. This is the verse I'm after. Thine they were, and thou gavest them to me. Two times in that verse he says, he gave them to Jesus, gave us to Jesus. But the phrase I want you to see is, thine they were. When were they his? From eternity past. We were chosen in him, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4. From before the foundation of the world. You note that? So three times already he said that. Now verse 9. I pray for them. I pray not for the world. Do you see that? How inconsistent is that with modern day philosophies? I pray not for the world. Jesus isn't praying for the world. He's praying for his own. But for them whom thou hast given me. That's the fourth time. For they are thine. How pointed can he make it? right. Amen. God loved the world. Christ loved the church. Precisely. Christ is not praying up there, wringing his hands, sweating, perspiring, concerned deeply that some of these people that ought to be saved aren't going to make it. That some of these people that he so loves and so yearns over will end up in hell. 
Jesus is not the least bit concerned about that. Those that are the fathers, the Father is giving to the Son, and they come to Him. Those whom God has given Him come to Him, and He doesn't cast them out. Isn't that what He declared to the blind man? Those whom uh, He has given me come to me, and he that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. Uh, I give you the fourth time, verse 9. The fifth time, verse 11. Uh, Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one. Verse 12, the sixth time. While I was with them in the world, I have kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me, I have kept, and none of them is lost, save the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And God prophesied Psalm 109, that the son of perdition would end up in hell. I have a, a pet theory about the uh, purpose of the son of perdition. That is another subject. Yes, Judas. I'm sorry. Forgive me. Judas, Judas is the son of perdition. Uh, not as his uh, one of his own. He was given to him to do a work, but he was not given to him as one of his own. He said, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. So he did chose the eleven to be his own, but the twelfth one he chose to be a, as a devil because he was a devil. By the way, Judas is the only person that word is ever used of, individual, a devil. The word is diabolos, not demonion. Most of the instances in the King James where the word uh, cast devils out of him, for example, the word is demonion, demon. It does indeed. He is, as far as I'm concerned, he is the beast out of the earth. That's a little amology there for you. Verse 22. Well, you got to make the distinction between the man and the devil, and the man, the man is the vessel for the devil. You know, uh, uh, the devil was rejoicing in what he had done, but the man Judas saw that his scheme didn't come to pass. He never expected Judas himself did not expect Jesus to go to the cross. He'd already seen him deliver himself from them several times. They tried to push him off a cliff in Nazareth, and he just passed out of the midst. The devil tried to destroy him in uh, the sea, you'll remember, uh, with a great storm, and he just rebuked the wind. You don't rebuke an inanimate object. You rebuke a personality. He rebuked the wind, and he said to the sea, Be calm. He delivered there. Uh, they tried to stone him on several occasions, and he just passed out of their midst. Uh, Judas had seen Jesus deliver himself from their hands on several occasions, and Judas thoroughly expected Jesus to come to the throne, and he was the treasurer, you remember, of the twelve. He was going to be the chancellor of the exchequer in the kingdom. He was sure of that. And he was a thief. And he liked the idea of being the treasurer in the kingdom and keeping the bag for the whole kingdom of Messiah. What great wealth that was going to be. Think about Solomon. What great wealth he had. Messiah's going to have greater wealth than Solomon did. He understood that. And he was the treasurer. Isn't this great? And he had no thought at all that he would ever deliver himself up to them. But the things weren't going the way he thought they were going to go. He thought Jesus was going to take the kingdom and he was going to be the treasurer, but things weren't going well. So he, beginning to think that this thing was going to fizzle, he was going to redeem all he could out of it. So he made a deal with the Pharisees to sell him, knowing that Jesus would escape them. They couldn't take him anyhow, and he'd have his 30 pieces of silver and still be the treasurer. But it didn't turn out that way. Hmm. Boy. No. Um, uh, the one that comes to my mind, and I don't know if it's the first or not, um, Ahithophel, a uh, priest under uh, David when Absalom took over, you'll remember, was counseling Absalom, and, and uh, Hushi gave uh, the counsel that David desired, and which was false counsel, but from the Lord, if you can perceive that. And uh, Ahithophel's good counsel was not received, so he went out and killed himself. But I don't remember right now if Ahithophel was 
if there was yet another before that, I just don't draw back. There's bound to have been one in the judges. Yeah, that's right. Well, he attempted it anyhow. It's a little vague there whether or not he did die or and the Amalekite lied or if the Amalekite found him yet alive and went ahead and finished him off. Um, that seems to be the case, but it's a little hard to say. But in any case, Saul attempted it, yes. You think of any back further than that? That's back further than Ahithophel. Of all the messed up situation Israel was in and the judges, there's bound to have been one recorded there, but I don't remember. Uh, all right, this, uh, oh, verse 22. I haven't got to the seventh time yet. Verse 22. The glory which thou hast given me have I given to them that they may be one even as we are one. Now, uh, this is uh, uh, Jesus viewing the position of the church as it's completed before him. As, as we've already said, we're already glorified in his presence according to Romans 8, 29 and 30. All right, now verse 24 for the seventh one. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me, there's the seventh time, be with me where I am that they may be, behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. And on you go with it. So there are seven times, and one of which in verse 6 he says, Thine they were. We belong to the Lord before we were ever given to him. Now we're going to stop there and take a break, and we'll come back to John chapter 10. One of the characteristics that goes with being a believer is that they're the people that come. It's kind of like Nicodemus. You know, you know this Nicodemus shows up three times in the Scripture? Have you observed that? Only three times. He shows up first that occasion when he has this conversation about being born from above. He shows up the second time when, the, when he came with the, the guards from the temple to arrest Jesus. You remember that? And when they came back from trying to arrest Jesus, Nicodemus, the one who came to Jesus by night, John says, when they asked the question, well, why haven't you brought him? What did Nicodemus say? What was his answer for not having brought him? No, no, they hadn't charged him yet. They just bring. There you are. Never man spake like this man. What kind of reason is that? Never man spake like this man. That's the second time Nicodemus shows up. The third time Nicodemus shows up is at the burial of Jesus when Joseph of Arimathea takes him along with Nicodemus. John records all three of them, and they take him to the grave, to Joseph's grave, and bury him. One of the characteristics that's manifest in a man who believes is that he keeps on coming. He keeps on keeping on. Uh, they don't always, they're not always themselves so sure. That is to me the phenomenal thing, that a lot of them aren't sure themselves if they're really going to go to heaven, but they keep on coming. The reason they're not sure that they're not going to go to, that they're going to go to heaven is because they don't understand the Word of God. The tragedy of it is that they don't understand the Word of God. But the fact remains, they've believed anyhow, and they keep on keeping on. All right, look over me to John 10, until we get too far afield from this. Verse 22 and following. This kind of points out what we said to you one time earlier, excuse me, that as Jesus gives the parable of the shepherd and the sheep, he said one of the sheep was lost and he went out to seek the sheep. Now if he had found a hog on the way, he wouldn't have brought the hog back. God in Christ is not seeking hogs or dogs, he's seeking sheep. Verse 22. And it was at Jerusalem the feast of dedication, it was winter, and Jesus walked in the temple on Solomon's porch, then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be Christ, tell us plainly. Now, were they told? Had they been told? Why, certainly, yes. John the Baptist, in the first place, announced him as the Christ. That had been his testimony, but they couldn't believe it. Why? They didn't have ears to hear. Verse 25, Jesus said unto them, I told you, and you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness to what I've told you. 
But ye, but now get this, ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. Now, uh, I had a footnote in my old Bible. I keep my old Bibles, and every now and then I go back and read them, and they just sometimes mortify me of what I've written in them. <laughs> he, I have written a footnote then in, the, in that Bible, and it reads, if they had believed him, they could have been his sheep. Well, that totally frustrates the verse. It's exactly the reverse of what he said. He said, you believe me not, because you're not my sheep, as I said unto you. He was very plain about that. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father who, what? Gave them to me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So that the gift that the Father gives to the Son is sheep, they are the people of God, and they come to the Lord Jesus. Those who are not, do not, and cannot. All right, any other questions about that to this point? All right, go back with me to Romans then. Yes, sir. Yes, uh-huh. <laughs> um, and one fellow said, um, and this I think pointed to it very, point, uh, very uh, uh, profoundly, we were in a conversation one time when we were in school, and, and one of the brethren was saying, well, yes, but what if you slip between the fingers? That was one of them's comment. And this one young fellow standing there said to him immediately, and I'm convinced God put the words in his mouth, he said, what if you're one of the fingers? You see, the thing that's lost sight of there is that we have become and he said that a little later on, I didn't want to read it, I and my Father are one. Uh, the thing that we lose sight of here is that the believer is the body of Christ and members in particular. And uh, if you are a member of that body, then God is not going to take a dismembered body into heaven. It is without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. You remember a lamb that was in any way uh, blemished could not be offered before the Lord, could it? What kind of an offering would the body of Christ be if a finger were missing? No, not only will you not slip through one of the fingers, you are one of the fingers, and you have been wrapped up in the Father's hand. It isn't just Christ's hand you're in, it's the Father's hand also you're in. And the suggestion then that the devil might do anything that would frustrate that is absurd. But you couldn't well, Paul said that in 1 Corinthians 12, didn't he? He said, can the eye say, I am not a part of the body? Can a hand say, I am not a member? That's right. And, but uh, the thing to me that's important about that is I didn't choose to become a part of the body in the first place. Now, if I had chosen to become a part of the body in the first place, then I might have had the choice to disassociate myself, to secede, if you would. But since I wasn't uh, included by my own choice in the first place, I cannot be excluded by my own choice. That is a very important factor in the whole issue of the sovereignty of God. Um, God chooses not on the basis of what we are, but on the basis of his love. Yeah. In the portion prior to that, in the 11th of Romans she's addressing, 11th chapter of Romans, in the portion prior to that he's speaking of corporate Israel who is blinded. He's talking about a corporate situation. In the next passage he's talking about corporate Gentiles. Corporate Israel was taken out. Corporate Gentiles are brought in. 
But obviously, every Israelite was not out. That's what Paul is saying. Even now, there's a remnant according to grace. So therefore, obviously, every Gentile is not brought in. He's looking at a corporate thing. So he's telling us corporate Israel was put out to provoke them to jealousy. Corporate Gentiles are brought in. But as corporate Israel is going to be brought in again, watch out, corporate Gentiles, you might be thrown out. You see? So the issue is corporate, it's not individual. So you have corporate Gentiles who are not going to be saved, and corporate is um, I'm sorry, individual Gentiles who are not going to be saved, and individual Israelites who are being saved. But corporate Israel is the, the natural olive branch that's lopped off, and corporate Gentiles are the wild olive branch that's grafted in. What he is simply saying is that by the blood of Christ, the Gentiles are brought into a position to be made heirs, but not every one of them is going to be made an heir. It's in the words of uh, Joel chapter 2, it shall come to pass in that day that I will pour out of my spirit on what? All flesh. Well, does that mean every individual? Oh, yeah. It is obviously not every individual. It is all without distinction, not all without exception. And it's very important we understand that. He's going to pour out of his spirit on Jews and on, on uh, Gentiles alike, on English and on Americans and on... on uh, all right, Russians, I'm trying to think about it, Spanish and, and so on down the line. But not on every Jew or every Englishman or every American or every Spaniard or every Russian. It is all without distinction, not all without exception. All flesh. Yes, that's true. That's true. Well, again, again, don't miss it. No, they are not all lost. Yeah, don't miss the point. That's right. They believe in God. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't watch. Look at verse uh, um, chapter nine of Romans, verse four. Oh wait a minute. I'm sorry. I'm in the wrong chapter. Forgive me. Verse uh, one of chapter eleven. I say, then hath God cast away His people? God forbid. For I am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, the tribe of Benjamin. Paul said, if he's cast away his people, then I'm out too. God hath not cast away his people whom he foreknew, in the sense of foreloving. Know ye not what the scripture saith of love? By the way, we talked about this issue of foreloving on yes, in uh, last week's class. It's on that tape. Know ye not what the scripture saith of Elijah, how he maketh intercession to God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed thy prophets, dug down thine altars. I am left alone, they seek my life. But what saith the answer of God unto him? I have reserved to myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to the image of Baal. So now there's a remnant, Paul says, according to grace. Verse 5. So out of Israel, there are those he is calling to himself. But when he is through calling to himself that remnant now, even then when Christ returns, he is going to redeem the whole nation of Israel after he has called out of Israel all things that offend. So you're looking at two segments, really in that redemption. First the remnant that's included in the church and then the nation of Israel that's ultimately going to be redeemed. So you cannot say, I've almost gotten too far away from your question, Janice, to remember what you asked. You cannot say that none of them are going to be saved, but that God is quickening to himself a remnant. Now, yes, I'm coming back to it. Now, uh, uh, there are Jews who have believed the Old Testament scripture. They believe, have believed God to the total extent that they understand God, but so had the Pharisees. You see, they believed the words, but they couldn't see the message. And that's why they didn't pick up Jesus as Messiah. All right, now, you must understand this, that right now, out of the Jews, both Orthodox 
and reform, God is saving His remnant. And you can find the testimonies of Jews who have believed presently, and you'll find they come out of every walk of Jewish background. Less orthodox than the others, but still orthodox. Like, uh, what's his name in California now? Uh, Michael Essies, orthodox Jew. And God marvelously saved him. But uh, other Jews, equally orthodox, they're not believing. God is now going to save them that are his out of that group. And then when he's through with this remnant in the church, and they go from the church into the kingdom, and Jesus returns to the earth, look at verse uh, 26 of Romans 11. Let me read 25 because it picks up the context. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, talking to Gentiles, that blindness in part has happened unto Israel. Now, what does he mean by, by in part? Because right now there's a remnant of Jews that are being saved that are a part of the church. Blindness in part has happened unto Israel, the nation, until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And when all these Gentiles finally get in, then what's going to happen? And so all Israel shall be saved. But when will they be saved? After the church is complete and the Deliverer comes out of Zion. When Christ returns to the earth in His glorious coming, then the nation of Israel is going to be saved, but they will not be a part of the church. You've got to make that distinction. And in like manner, there are going to be a lot of Gentile nations saved during this period, but they are not in the church. The church is the bride of Christ, and it is a unique work which God is carrying on now as a part of the kingdom of God. You see, and it's constituted by every born-again believer from Pentecost to the translation. That's right. God is going to... Yes, that needs to be seen that way. But God is going to bring his adulterous wife, which back here was put away when they crucified him. He's going to bring that adulterous wife back to himself, but not until he's called out a bride for his son. So God begat a wife, Israel, and through that wife, Israel, he begat a son, Jesus, and for that son he is calling to himself a people for his name, a bride for his son out of the Gentiles, and then he restores the adulterous wife. Yeah, that's why it's called a mystery. If I could refer you to verse 25 again, I don't want you to be ignorant of this mystery. Jacob, Rachel, and Leah. No, yeah, he was already his wife. And she became unfaithful to him. And went whoring after the nations, he said. Because that, of that, he put her away. Pardon? Yeah, the prophet Hosea deals with that, yes. That's Hosea, that's right. What they're referring to in the prophet Hosea is God came to the prophet Hosea, which means salvation. That's what his name means. And he came to Hosea and he says, Hosea, I want you to go love a woman, beloved of her friend, but, of an, but an adulteress. And I want you to love her with the same love I have for Israel. And so Hosea did. He went and took that wife, Gomer, who was an adulteress. <clears throat> and he loved her with the same love God had for Israel. But then, he, and she bore him three children. And then she bore Lo-Ami, not my people. She played the harlot against him, bore a child that wasn't Hosea's, and God says, now put her away. And so he put her away. He said, now Israel, this is the way I'm dealing with you. He said, I have loved you as a husband loves his wife, but you have played the harlot against me, and therefore I'm putting you away. And after he put her away, then he says, all right, now Hosea, I want you to go find her again, and I want you to bring her back to you. 
So he goes out looking for her, and he finds her in the slave market in the center of the city being sold as a common slave. And he goes down and bids for his wife. Can you imagine that? And he bids uh, uh, an omer of uh, barley and a half omer of barley and I think 30, or I'm sorry, uh, 15 shekels of silver, as I recall. And the whole thing totals out to a value of 90 shekels of silver. That was three times the going rate for a good male slave. Three times the going rate. So he paid three times the price to buy back his wife that she might become his wife again in faithfulness. Now God says to Israel, that's what I'm doing with you. And she was put away back here, Israel. She is being brought again again here. Look at this in, in Genesis 22. We'll go back to 21. We're on a bit of a bunny path now, but it might be a worthwhile one. In Genesis 21, we have the birth of the promised son, Isaac. Yes, he is the, he is the child of promise. And that Isaac, according to Galatians 4, is a figure of the Lord Jesus. Galatians 3 and 4. We have the birth of the promised son in 21. In chapter 22, we have the death of the promised son. He is taken to the land of Moriah and offered upon a mount there. Now, he received him again, Hebrews 11 says, in a figure from the dead. So he was as good as dead. He is a figure of Christ crucified on Mount Moriah. All right? In Genesis chapter 23, somebody tell me what happens. Sarah dies. The mother dies. There is the wife put away. She went into spiritual death. You following? Israel after the son is offered. What happens in Genesis 24? Yes, a bride is taken for Isaac. Isn't that marvelous? After the mother is put away. Israel. Hmm? Yes, that's right. That's right. She, he brought her into his mother Sarah's tent and he loved her and she became his wife. That's right. Oh, by the way, glad you brought that up to remind me. The fact that he brought her into his mother Sarah's tent is significant since we are now who were strangers from the commonwealth of Israel and uh, aliens from the covenants of promise are made nigh by the blood of Jesus. Not of what? Commonwealth of Israel, covenants of promise. We come into his mother Sarah's tent. The blessings which were given to Israel now are ours, you see. And a lot more too, but that's another subject. So here is the bride now brought in. After the bride is brought in and joined to Isaac and brought into the tent, then what happens in chapter 25? All right, we've got a new wedding. So here is a wife restored. Israel returned. But this can't happen until this is complete. Blindness in part has happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. So when the last Gentile is brought into the church, then God is going to restore Israel. So Janice, there's your believing Jews. There are multitudes of Jews who believe today. And Orthodox Judaism is on the increase. It's growing. And God is preparing a people to be that wife restored here. You see? But they're not believing here. God has given them slumbering eyes, eyes that can't see, ears that can't hear, because he doesn't want them converted now. They're going to be converted over here. He is calling out of them now a segment, a remnant of them, because he always has a remnant of everybody out of every age. He is calling a remnant to share in this bride, but they are the minority. The Gentiles are in the minority here. But he is going to restore the nation of Israel in this day, and they in turn will be the head of the rest of the nations. They are going to rule over the political empires of the world. Yes, yes, that's what he's bringing them to. He's... Yes, now, that's right. That's Romans chapter 10. Uh, Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And they're not calling on the name of the Lord. They will not confess the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's the only way you get in now. Absolutely the only way you get in. Uh
No. No. Neither one you can say is true now. But that God is preparing a people who have a heart after him or are going to be justified. They are going to believe. Well, then they're not figured in that number. Now, for me to speak beyond that point would be to speak beyond what I know. Now, uh, my... <laughs> All right, I'm going to do it. You brought me that far. I'm really opening myself up to much... Uh, uh, flack and criticism and so forth here to say this, but I will say it. It is my personal feeling, I cannot give you chapter and verse for it, but it is my personal feeling that there have always been a segment of Jews who have believed God and who were justified because they have believed God even though they did not know about or did not understand the message of Jesus. But they are, here's where I'll get in trouble, but they are not a part of the church. They never have been, never will be. They constitute a part of redeemed or the remnant of redeemed Israel as a nation. Uh, an example, if you would, in the scripture of a man who can be justified and not saved is Cornelius. We cited this earlier. Now, I think that there are a lot of... Now, Cornelius didn't understand the message of Messiah altogether either. You know, he, was, he was a proselyte Jew, and he believed God to the extent that he understood what God said. But... Yes, but he had no salvation. And that's why Peter went to him. If he'd have died, he'd have gone to heaven. But he wouldn't have been in the church. Because the only way you can get in the church is be born again. Well, I think there are probably a lot of Jews that fall in that category. Now, Michael Essie's made a comment about his father, which was interesting to me. His father was an Orthodox Jew to the day he died and rejected Jesus to the day he died. And was very angered, of course, with Michael Essie's because he had become a Christian. But uh, from the manner in which Michael Essies described him, he was a very God-fearing man. Now, I'm talking about Jews. I'm not talking about Gentiles, you understand. Well, yes, but the thing that God... Yeah, the thing that God is refusing to open their eyes to now is the message of Jesus. Look with me to 2 Corinthians 3, since we've gone this far afield. Yes, that's right. Well, that's the thing we got to see out of this whole study. That if anybody gets to heaven at all, it's because God's taken them there. Let's see, where shall we begin? Twelve. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech, and not as Moses, who put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished. But their minds were blinded. Now, that's the same thing you have back in Romans. Chapter 11. Blindness in part has happened unto Israel. Verse 25. But their minds were blinded, for until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which Old Testament, not veil, is done away in Christ. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Now, who put it there? God put it there. Nevertheless, when the heart shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Now, he's looking at the nation. So God is going to remove the veil from their face when their heart turns to the Lord. Now see this further as an example in Joseph. Joseph is a figure of the Lord Jesus, yes? Didn't we go through him one time in this class? Joseph was hated by his brethren. He was put into a pit and taken out. There's death, burial, and resurrection. He was banished from his brethren. He went into a foreign land. While he's ruling over that land, he takes a Gentile bride. After the Gentile bride is taken, he even begets children by her, 
Then God sends a famine on the land, which drives his brethren back down to Egypt, and they meet Joseph, and they don't know who he is. There's a veil over their face. Yes? They don't know who he is. And he speaks roughly to them, and they bow before him. I am convinced Israel's going to do the same thing. But I am further convinced that there is going to be a reflection in the heart of Israel as a nation at the time of the second coming of Christ, when they're in the midst of this famine, the time of great tribulation, after the church has been translated into his presence. And may I suggest you a little lamology here, that Israel is going to start to reflect something like this concerning all the trouble that's on them, and now they're going through one final holocaust. They don't know it's the final holocaust, but it's another holocaust that they're headed for. And I wonder if they aren't going to say such things to themselves as, maybe we were wrong. Maybe that one we crucified back there really was him. Now that's exactly what started to happen in the brethren of Joseph, wasn't it? Before they ever knew who it was who was speaking roughly to them, they turned one to another and said, why is this coming on us? How come that guy's treating us that way? And one of them said, it's because of what we did with Joseph, our brother. You remember that? And they didn't know that's who they were talking about. May I suggest to you the same thing is going to happen in the camp of Israel. Maybe he really was the one. And that's when you begin to see who are the Lords and who aren't. And those who acknowledge that, God is going to bring in redemption as a part of the nation. Those who don't, he's going to destroy. That's the message of Ezekiel 20. He said, I'm going to cause Israel to pass under the rod, and I'm going to call out of Israel all things that offend. God's going to slay and destroy unbelieving Israel. And he's going to establish in righteousness those that have believed God. They maybe didn't know anything about Jesus, but he's going to establish as a nation in righteousness those who believe God, and then Christ will return, and they'll look on him whom they have pierced, and they'll mourn because of him, and he will reveal himself unto them for who he is, just as Joseph did to his brethren. And they're going to be terrified then, too. You remember when Joseph said, I'm Joseph, they were terrified. They thought, sure, he was going to kill them, which he easily could have done. But he said, don't worry about it. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. Well, Ephraim and Manasseh. You thinking about them? Well, uh, I'm not sure what you're saying. Ephraim is tremendously important in the economy of God. Um, not in Egypt they weren't. No, but that's not the issue in Egypt. But they became so uh, in the dividing of the land. And uh, uh, the thing that makes Joseph so important to God is that he is the covenant son. Now, Judah was the ruling body, the ruling son. He was the... He received the right of the firstborn because Reuben defiled his father's couch, went into his father's concubine, so he was dropped. Uh, Simeon and Levi uh, betrayed a blood covenant with the sons of Heth, so they too were dropped, and that brought us to Judah. So the scepter belonged to Judah. He was then taking the place of the firstborn of the first wife. But Rachel begat Joseph as a firstborn, and Joseph was the firstborn of the beloved wife, and the covenant was given to Joseph. But the genealogy was reckoned through Judah. Second Chronicles chapter 5 deals with that. Because he pulled out Levi. He pulled out Levi to be the priestly tribe before the Lord, and so he eliminated one tribe, and he had to fill up the place of that tribe because Levi had no inheritance in Israel. The Lord was their inheritance. So when he pulled out Levi, then he took the two sons of Joseph to make up the difference, to make a total of 12 tribes. And Ephraim became the dominant tribe in the north. That's why oftentimes the term Ephraim is used well, when God is talking about the whole of the northern ten tribes in the northern kingdom, he calls them Ephraim. 
because Ephraim was not only the largest tribe, but it was a dominant tribe, and it was always jealous of Judah. The reason it was jealous of Judah was because he thought he ought to be the ruler. He was the firstborn, the covenant son of the beloved wife. Yeah, that's Ephraim. That's Ephraim, right. He, uh, well, that's in the economy of God. Again, he rejects the first, chooses the second. That's first man Adam rejected, last Adam received. Yeah, he rejected Esau and Jacob. He rejected Cain and chose Abel. Rejected Saul and chose David. He always rejects first choosing. He rejects Zerah and chose uh, Pharaohs. He rejected uh, Manasseh and chose Ephraim. We haven't got anywhere, saints, and our class is up. Oh, yeah. Well, I was going to teach a lesson, too, and I didn't get that taught either. So, uh, I'll tell you what I'll do. When we come to our class the next time, I'll give you those questions, and you can take them home and, and answer them. But I might give you a little more work to do since I'm doing it that way. And you can uh, then you'll have a background for your final quiz. And all of these grades, by the way, I'm going to average together in one. Any other questions pertaining to the lesson which wasn't taught? That's right. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the children of Abraham by faith are the children of promise. Well, because the lamb is the innocent one that will follow. A lamb, the characteristic of a lamb is he'll follow anybody. All somebody has to do is show affection to a lamb and he'll follow him. But a sheep gets independent. The sheep is the mature one who is subject to either doing the right thing or getting independent and going away from. And uh, you're talking about his discourse with Peter? Yeah. Uh, so Jesus said, uh, uh, feed my lambs and feed my sheep. Both of them need to be fed. But he said, tend my sheep. Sheep have to be tended. Don't, lambs don't have to be tended. A lamb will follow the shepherd without any question. Uh, there's the danger with lambs. They'll follow anybody that shows affection to them. Uh, Jonestown, i.e. Um, I had this experience one time when I was working sheep with one of the ranchers. Uh, we had some lambs that uh, were getting separated from the ewes. And so I went over after one of them, and the lamb was running from me, right of me. And I couldn't get it going the right direction. And I went over to pick it up. He said, don't pick it up. But I did anyhow. And he said, now you've done it. So I set that lamb back down, and that lamb followed me everywhere I went. <laughs> Thought I was its mother. And that taught me a lesson about lambs. They'll follow anybody that shows them affection. Yeah, that's right. that's right. Well, they are, but you know, interestingly, goats make better pets. I mean, in that sphere of animal kingdom, goats make better pets. And that's a fascinating thing to me, you know.